Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, helping you conquer the chaos in your life. Your host is licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Colleen has been doing what she does for almost two decades. She's a private practice owner, a chaostician, and her work or writing has been featured on countless websites. Listen in as she brings you experts in the psychology of life. They may be New York Times bestsellers, key players in their profession, or people who have overcome tremendous obstacles in life and are here to share their story to help you live your best life. Let's get to it. Stay tuned for our next Chaos Crushing guest. Here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hi there and welcome back. It's Dr. Colleen here. Before we get into the show, I just want to acknowledge that we have all been through some chaotic times this week. I'm recording this a couple of days after Biden was named the president-elect, and we have had people on both sides of the fence reacting, some rejoicing and others loudly questioning the results. It's all too much to take in for some of us. And, you know, most of us like to have a defined path for transition or change. Now, if you join me as being one of those people, then I want to encourage you to really take some time to sit with how you're feeling. Recognize that you're doing your part for what you can do, and until any change does take place, our lives go on as they have. Just keep moving forward because change is inevitable. That gets me to today's interview. I had the opportunity to interview Robert DeLude. Robert and I met through the podcast community online. He is the up-and-coming host of the None of Your Business podcast, where he talks with entrepreneurs about anything but their business. I was fortunate enough to record a conversation on his show a little while ago and should be coming out soon, but today I'm going to flip the tables on Robert as the host and have this conversation with him about what's important to him. He's a guy who has survived drug addiction and forged a new path for himself to pursue his passions, and he's done it all before he's even turned 30. He's really public about the good and the bad days, and we are going to chat about what he has learned about himself through his struggles and through his successes, and how he's learned to persevere and now prosper on the flip side of recovery. You know, he has a really inspiring story just when you hear about all the dark places where he goes, and even if you haven't had the addiction struggle, everyone struggles with something sometime. And just because our struggle isn't the same doesn't mean that we can't gain from the wisdom that someone who has survived their struggle, you know, what they have to say about it, whether it's self-confidence or how to put what's best for you as the priority in your life, even when your friends or other people may want you to do something else, you know, that's important. And then, of course, we have the podcast, and I want you to hear what Robert's bringing to his audience through his show. Let's get to it. Hey, it's Dr. Colleen here with a quick break to let you know what I've got going on over at patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast. That's the site where you can get some exclusive items just for supporting the show with a small contribution each month. I've got four levels to pick from, but the best value will be tier two, the chaos crushers tier. For signing up to be a Chaos Crusher at just $9 a month, the big thing you're going to get is three new self-help recordings each month done exclusively for my Patreon subscribers. You will also get a Chaos Crushing ebook and a shout out on the show for your support. Now, if you're in a position to support just a little bit more, there are ways to get even a 20-minute coaching call with me every month. 
go over and check it out at patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast. And if you wish you could support the show, but it's just not in your budget to give a few dollars, that is perfectly okay. I am just glad that you're here with me on this podcasting journey. So let's get back into the show. Thanks, Robert, for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that I'm here. It's definitely an honor and a privilege to to be here. So thank you. Yeah, Robert, before we get into your life story and everything else, I want to take a second to start because I did mention that you are on the flip side of recovery. So, and I want to acknowledge that. So as of today, like, where are you in your recovery? How long has it been for you? Yeah. yeah. So I've been in recovery for seven years, but I haven't stayed sober that entire time. So on January 5th, it will be two years. Awesome. And then later when we dive into the story, we can, we can get into the details about that. But January 5th is where the last time I used in 2018. Excellent. All right. Well, you know, congratulations on that. I always think it's really good to kind of acknowledge where a person is in that process so that we kind of get that this isn't something that just happened yesterday for you. And, uh, that this has been years of being in it. And as you said, it's, it's in recovery and there's, you know, other, other things that happen along the way that kind of shift up how long it's been since you've used anything. So why don't we get into some of your story and talk about what have you learned about how you even came to be someone who had to deal with an addiction? Like when I would go into like elementary school as a young kid, and I just felt different. People would be playing basketball, you know, having fun. And I just felt like a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. I was the same age, same size, same skin color. And I just felt like a fly on the wall. So when I came, you know, into middle school and the opportunity for a substance to be there for me to feel different, mm-hmm. I took it. You know, I started smoking weed and started drinking and I just felt like I was a part of, I was part of the cool kids. Ah. So, you know, I got into a car wreck in seventh grade. Uh, My aunt spoon fed me Oxycontin. I was taking 40 milligram Oxycontin when I weighed like maybe a hundred pounds in seventh grade. Wow. And from there, you know, I got a hundred grand from the, from the car settlement and I was just buying cocaine, flipping it doing drugs, Molly actually had dropped out of school. I was running drugs all across the state um, and the Northwest. Wait, now we're talking like teenager. This was, this was not the actions of a, of an, of an old, of an old man. This is like a kid. You're talking about 12 years old and the oxy. And now do you have any idea now if your aunt really knew like that it could be like the lead in for something? Give yeah, my aunt is a full addict right now. So maybe not in the moment. Yeah. But, you know, I, I got into a car wreck and I was in pain. So she was just helping me out. Mm-hmm. I don't think she was doing it to like, you know, to hurt me. Yeah. I think she was just like, I want to help you. And I was just taking the oxys, like, probably more than what she was thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't yeah, think so, but, so you got that you got that relief early on though about like that a substance can like make you feel better than you had been yeah. feeling around other absolutely. people. Yeah. Absolutely. My anxiety went away, my confidence went up. I could talk to women, I could talk to guys, I I could function. Like 
what my anxiety level was when I, so I used to be a janitor, which is nothing wrong with that, but I used to be a janitor. And if somebody was in their office and I like just had to go to their desk and grab their trash can, if they were in their office, I would literally have a panic attack because I might have to have a conversation with this person. Uh-huh. And no, they would just say, hi, I would have a panic attack. So many times I'd fall or I would, uh, you know, collapse because my anxiety was so high. Like I couldn't talk to people. So when you give me a substance to make me feel okay and all my worries and my confidence go up, then I'm going to do it. And then unfortunately the substances that I like, I got addicted, mm-hmm. you know, but I, you know, I, I was born an alcoholic. I, I fully believe that it, it didn't matter. Like my story is mostly drugs, mm-hmm. but I have a thinking problem and it, you know, it centers in my mind. I am a full blown alcoholic, but like, it's easier for me if I'm going to call somebody to get me booze, then why not? The guy who's buying me beer is my dealer. Then why, like, why not just get drugs? Mm-hmm. So I just got addicted to drugs and definitely there was drinking, but when you're, you know, don't even have a license and you have a debit card with a hundred thousand dollars on it and drug connections. And like, that's just the way it happens. And then I, you know, I, I came to the point where, uh, you know, the market crashed in 2008. My dad's business failed. I was, I had to start selling drugs. Well, I didn't have to start selling drugs. They found out that I was selling drugs and they're like, okay, you're going to pay our bills or you're going to get the fuck out. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was one of these things where, well, if you're going to do it, then it needs to benefit us too. And can I ask a little bit, are you comfortable talking about like the fact that you were just given that debit card and access to that hundred thousand dollars when really there was like, no, it doesn't sound like you had much supervision over that as a, as a kid. To- no, no. Like, you know, the, I definitely took advantage of my parental household for sure. My, my, my dad's an alcoholic. My mom uh, has been disabled with MS for years. Wow. So, uh, you know, a young kid running and gunning, like I took advantage of it. I manipulated the system and, you know, my older sister was kind of like my, my mom growing up, but she has her own life going on. And I would go to the bank and I would just sign whatever I need to sign. And like, I live in a, my hometown, like had 30,000 people on it. And like, they still trusted your word when you went into the bank. Mm-hmm. So like, I definitely manipulated the system and uh, my actions got me like, it didn't matter if you, you know, locked me up in a room. I was still going to find a will. I was definitely going to find a way. That was just the way that I was. So, you know, I, uh, if you fast forward the script, that's basically my life. You know, I'm then, you know, from oxys, it goes to heroin. And mm-hmm. then, you know, at 19 years old, I end up, well, no, it's so at 17 years old. I'm like, you know what? This is the life that I know that like, no, no 16 year old is doing this shit. Uh-huh. Like right. nobody's doing this. So like there's a, the national guard youth challenge program. Um, there's one in Montana and I was like, I need to get my GD. I need to gain some weight. And I just need to get the hell away from these people. The, the, the circle of friends that I was with. Yeah. So, so you could already see that like you needed to do something for yourself because it sounds like no one else was really going to do it at that point. They were, yeah. weren't stepping in to go, this needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I didn't know what alcoholism was because I thought alcoholism was the guy down behind the dive bar 
mm-hmm. being homeless. Like I had no idea. Yeah. And when I think you're that age, you're not supposed to know what an alcoholic is, but maybe um, the dare program just showed me what drugs I wanted to take. So, but so I, I go to these youth challenge program for six months and, you know, I I'm going to a going to a meetings in there. And, you know, when I get out, I make it a month without drinking. I drank and I end up drinking that night, getting drunk and running back up to Spokane, my plug and just doing the exact same thing that I got away from. And then when you throw heroin in it, I end up living in Spokane. Uh, my girlfriend kicked me out. I had to take a bus back to Montana in the middle of winter. Like luckily my friends, you know, they wired me money so I could buy a pair of shoes because she kicked me out with no shoes, no nothing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I, I saw that my life was spiraling out of control again. And and yet you were doing what so many people, because I know people are going to listen because of the story of overcoming addiction. And so many people are going to relate to what you just said too, about kind of the cycle of going into rehab and like the, when you get out, like you might get a couple of weeks, you might get 30 days, but like for whatever reason, it wasn't lasting and Absolutely. you just kind of cycled around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and then now you found yourself in Spokane, got some shoes on your feet from your friends and trying to figure out what, what was next for you. You know, well, it was taking a bus back to, back to Montana after lots of crying and, you know, I'm end up living in my hometown for a little bit. And like, I can see that like the feds are best on my buddies. Houses are getting kicked in by the DEA. Like things are just going bad. And I'm like, what? Like, okay. Like I'm 19 years old and I'm shooting up drugs. Like I need to do something. So, you know, I, I went and talked to my grandma my grandma got me into treatment. And then I went to treatment, um, June 4th, 2013. And I ended up staying sober for three years and my life changed. I, you know, people trusted me. It was, you know, my life was the best it's ever been before then. You know, when you go into a 12 step program and work the steps and do like, take care of yourself, mm-hmm. you can do it. And then, you know, I, I stopped taking care of myself three years after, or a month after my three year birthday, I ended up having, uh, one out of three surgeries on my testicles and yeah, I had a lump in there and it wasn't cancerous, but like the surgery got done and then I got addicted to painkillers again. Oh no. Yeah. And then it was a 15 month cycle of the surgery, just trying to get the surgery to work and having emergency surgery and more painkillers. And then I would, you know, get sober for like six, nine months. And then, you know, it was, since I got addicted to the painkillers, I would try and get off Suboxone. Yeah. And then I get off Suboxone, I'm like, fuck this shit. I'm sick. I need to go out. Or, like, I get into, like, I'm codependent. I'm uh-huh. super codependent. You, If you smile at me or if you wink your eye at me, mm-hmm. you are my source of love. So, I got... I'm, so, I'm you at, find someone. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. Absolutely. And now, before we get into that part of life, you know, can we go back just a little bit? Like you, you got at, like whatever happened when your grandma stepped in and helped you get to rehab that that last time before the the surgery started. What was different for you when you got out and were able to be clean? Like, how did you sustain that? 
You know, what was different that time that it lasted? Yeah. So there was a gentleman that I used to party with and he went to prison and ended up getting sober. And like this guy, like I thought I drank and used drugs. This guy, like, holy sh! like <laughs> he outdid me. And, you know, I found out that he was going to AA. So I met up with him and he just had a different look on his face. Mm-hmm. He had, you know, this like bright twinkly thing in his eye. And I'm like, I want that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I stay connected with him when I was in treatment and I asked him to be my sponsor in a 12 step program. And then he took me through those actions of what a 12 step program does. You know, I got into the steps and he got me into service work. You know, he got me a job at his job. Uh, we were end up building drift boats, which, and got paid absolutely garbage for doing uh-huh. it. Yeah. But, you know, there was only three of us in the shop. All of us were in recovery. We were roommates. We went to the gym and I got involved. I got it. Like I got out of myself. Mm-hmm. Well, and this, this friend of yours like saw you as like worth helping. Yeah. Who kind of took you under his wing and then became your sponsor and kind of took you along to the job and everything else. Like, it sounds like it's one of these times where I don't know from, from what you're saying, it sounds like you were on your own a lot and maybe didn't get a lot of signs that, you know, you're worth, worth it or worth investing in, you know, and caring about. Um, So it sounds like this guy, that was one of those things that really influenced the difference uh, in helping you sustain it was that like you were getting also that reinforcement that someone else thought you were worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He, yeah, he was like an older brother. Mm-hmm. You know, he like, he showed that care and concern. Like literally when I got sober at 19, I didn't know how to cook a meal. Of course you didn't. <laughs> I like one I never ate, but like, I didn't know how to do anything. Like this man literally spoon fed me my sobriety, spoon fed me life. And like, he would wake me up at 5am. We'd go to the gym. He'd show me how to work out. He'd show me, he would train me in my job. Like this guy literally like he saved my life. Mm-hmm. You know, he showed that care concern. And like for that, yeah. I'm forever grateful. And like a lot of people don't get that opportunity. Yes. They don't. I just haven't be. I got lucky. And that's why it's so important through, through the recovery process for people to connect. I mean, because if you didn't put yourself out there and get to a meeting, you, you wouldn't have found this old friend of yours. And that opportunity probably would have been missed because those are those one-off kind of things, but it takes being there to get it or to even have the chance of getting it. They say don't leave before the miracle. So I'm glad that I didn't. And uh, so then, though, then you had a very similar experience for a lot of people also who struggle is that you then had a medical issue and got put on the pain pills. Did you have an inkling at that time that that was going to set you off? Or did you think you were that strong in your recovery that you were kind of like, oh, hey, I can handle this because it's just for the surgery? No, I straight up told my doctor, I do not want the pain meds. Oh, uh uh-huh. And he's like, I can't perform the surgery. Like, I'm not going to do that to you. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe. So I like, I text my roommate and I text one of my friends. I'm like, can you guys dispense these meds to me? Because if not, then I'm probably going to get back into my old behavior. And like, I was definitely worried. Like I, you know, 
just because like he was giving me painkillers like i and i'm a heroin addict Mm -hmm. like that's just a bad mix like yeah it's terrible yeah so and like my friends were dispensing the meds to me but then i would get into my old behavior i'm like well if i cheek it and when they go to work i can just snort it and slowly but surely that's what i was doing and then i was shooting up in my bedroom my roommate was in the program he's right us right upstairs for me i would have to sneak out of my back door so i didn't see him because i was just so just filled with guilt and shame and like oh geez he's like babysitting me while i'm recovering from the surgery and i'm fucking getting high down here mm-hmm. like it's just not it's not but you know if because of you know that foundation that that gentleman gave me i always knew where to go back and like, I really never really left recovery. Mm-hmm. I would still like go to, you know, these, the fellowship and be strung out. I just, it was hard for me to stay clean. That's why all of that exists. Cause it is hard to stay clean, but to your credit, right? Like you kept going even when you weren't in a condition to be there. Yeah. Um, so then you did get though off of that again and made some strides again. Yes. Yeah. So I would, I, I got off. I made it like six, nine months. I would make it. And then I met this girl. Ah, yes. So I met this girl and we were like, we we're both like nine months sober or something. And we started dating after a meeting. And that, uh, you know, like a week after we started dating, she moves in with me. Uh, really like she was, she had borderline personality disorder and I'm codependent Uh and there was like this force, this like Mm -hmm. evil force that just held us together. And like, it didn't matter if she pulled or I pulled, it would just, we would do this codependent two-step and you know, she had a, like, so she, we both relapsed together. She couldn't pass her drug test because she was on parole or probation. And Mm -hmm her probation officer was like, if you don't pass your drug test again, I'm going to lock you up. So we had this brilliant idea of going down and living in Las Vegas. And I was planning for jobs and I had some pretty decent jobs lined up Mm -hmm. and some cast jobs lined up. Like everything seemed legit. She had a friend down there. Uh, They let us crash on their couch. Granted her friend was was a prostitute and she was going to help us out until we got on our feet. Like, that didn't like excuse me in my head like that wasn't like a like that red wasn't flag. a crazy idea back then no. it was but, like okay well excuse me like that's exactly what we're, like that's what we're gonna do like yeah okay so i'm gonna lie to my family i'm gonna lie to my friends i'm gonna lie to everyone say that i'm moving to california i told one person that i'm moving to california one other person that i'm moving or just going to bozeman for the weekend and then we were gone and you know, three days into Vegas, like there's a pimp next door that's that busted down our door trying to get this girl to work. You know, gunshots are going off. And I'm like, what the f- what French toast did I get myself into? Right. Cause you're the, you're the guy who was the kid from a small town in Montana who could walk around at a bank at 13 and have access to his bank account. Cause everybody trusted you. Now you're in Vegas with pimps and prostitutes and gunshots and heroin. 
Yeah. And like your life is just really out of, out of control. Yeah, absolutely. It's out of control. And like, I would try, I would do like these cash jobs and like just trying to make rent. And we just did not make rent because we were just spending all the money on drugs. Yeah. So, you know, doing that. And then the Clark County police department literally had to escort us out of our house after the eviction because we, wow. we weren't leaving. Like, <laughs> I don't think I've ever said this to anyone, but like when the cops came in, we just acted like we were sleeping on the floor. And if they thought we were sleeping, they would just leave us alone and go away. <laughs> like now thinking back at it, like, Oh my gosh. Like we didn't have any furniture in the house. Like the only thing that we had was, you know, used needles and f- cotton swabs. So, you know, wow. Uh, then we end up sleeping on our car in Vegas and like just finding anywhere to, you know, sleep. She was selling, my fiance was selling her body so we could eat mm-hmm. and just, I would cry, I would call home like, please just, you know, send us money to get home and they'd send us money so we could get home. And then, you know, that she'd be like, work. yeah, no, it, like I, like when I was asking for money, I was like, I want to come home. I really meant it. She'd be pissed off at me. She would be sleeping with another guy or we really wanted to go. And then we get the money and we're like, let's just get a little bit before we drive. Mm -hmm. And then the whole cycle would be there. And like, I'm lying to my friends. I'm lying to my family. My family is sick and tired. My family is just worried, sick about me. We're in the second most dangerous part of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And like gun, like literally I, the first time that I was in Vegas, the gunshots going off across the block, I thought was fireworks. Right. Cause it is Las Vegas, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like if I hear that stuff, like I live in Montana, everyone carries a gun, but like you don't hear a gunshot go off. You just think that it's a firework. So yeah, just different, different cultures. And you know, when I finally made it back home, after getting, you know, getting shot at in Vegas, you know, almost dying in Vegas. Um, we, you know, so I'm back in Montana and we're in Montana for a couple of days mm-hmm. and my family is just like, get away from that woman. She's bad for you. I'm like, you don't know her like I do. Of course. Like, yeah. Just so we're just wherever we can sleep in Helena. And, you know, this one night, I think it was like, it was July 3rd of 2018 we're driving to uh this house out by the lake and like this drake song came on i'm like hey just change the subject or change the song we are coming down off meth we haven't slept in days we just like we haven't slept since we got back from vegas we're stressed the fuck out so the song comes on i'm like just change it and she's like you're so strong you're still strung up on your ex-girlfriend and I go to punch my rear view mirror and I just punch it, punch it, punch it. And I see this car coming in the other lane and I yell, okay, I'm just going to kill us both. So I floor it and I go straight for this other car and she grabs the wheel and takes us into the ditch. Like, thank God she did that. I would have killed a random family. I would have killed her. I would have killed me. And she gets out of the car. She's like, you're fucking insane. Blah, blah. And I'm crying. I'm just like, yeah. I'd say her name, like, just come back to me. Just come back to me. And she's yelling. And like anybody who can hear us thinks that I'm trying to rape and kill her. 
Oh. So like the we eventually make it to the house that we're going at, and the cops show up, guns a blazing. Uh, She's hiding in the bathroom. I open up the door. I weigh like a hundred pounds. Right. And I'm covered in blood because my hand from the mirror. The car's messed up. They're like, okay, where's the girl? Like, and I'm covered in blood. And like oh, they gosh. first thing that they ask is where's it's gonna the girl? It's gonna be like a dateline episode. Yeah. yeah. Like, if you don't let us in, we're going to detain you. And I'm like, you know what? This looks really bad. So they come in. They find her. She gets arrested. And, you know, uh, I'm just sitting there. And I see this bottle of bleach. And I see these bottle of pills, like ibuprofen or something. And because my source of love got arrested because it was was all my fault. Well, of course, that's what you would be telling yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And. You know, I, I go grab the bleach and I go grab the pills and then the door knocks. There's a knock on the door. The sheriff, that they left like a while ago. They were gone. So when they were gone, like I was sitting there contemplating on doing this and the sheriff was like, hey, the girl that they just arrested, like they think that you're going to, you know, ki- she thinks that you're going to kill yourself. How about I drive you into town and just put you in a safe place with people? So what do I have the sheriff do? I have him drop me off at the dope dealer's house. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And, you know, I go and write a check. Like, I stole this check that didn't even, like, the bank account doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, you were just, like, one thing after another, just, like, going deeper and deeper into your own ditch there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I opened up a bank account with a check that didn't even exist. Got the because I was trying to get her bail money. Went and took that money and bought meth and heroin and put as much as I could in that in my in my arm because I was trying to kill myself. Yeah. Then I woke up in the ICU. Oh. I woke up in the ICU. The doctors told me I almost died, and thank God they called nine one one or I probably wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. And like that, like where my addiction and my codependency takes me is like if if I'm not taking care of me, I'll use men, women, drugs, booze, Netflix, social media, whatever, to make myself feel better because I'm just, I feel like I'm not enough. Was that the the real turning point? Did that, did that become the change point for you, this overdose? You know, it was, I was like, I am not doing this shit. Like I, I, I can't do this anymore. And you know, the, the idea of like a podcast was always in the back of my head. You know, it was always in the back of my head and, you know, I, Gary Vaynerchuk, I would listen to him like 10 years ago and I'm like, you know what? I like this guy. I like what he's doing. Like, this is kind of something that I would want to do. And then there's this guy, James Sweezy, who, uh, he is pretty bit like, I don't know. He's like a sober influencer, probably like uh-huh. one of the first sober influencers, whatever, um, there is. And I'm like, you know, that, that's kind of something that I want to do. So, I would record episodes and I'd be full of fear and just like anxiety. And then I got into another codependent relationship and then it was two years to the date, basically today um, that that codependent relationship was ending. And then I would struggle and just like in my head and not really dealing with my codependency issue at all. Uh And then on Christmas I relapsed and then on Christmas I relapsed and like I was, I, I don't know. I was high for a while. Um, my therapist was like, well, you're high when you saw me on the first for the first time. So, and then I 
started my job. So I'm guessing, you know, January 5th is my sobriety date mm-hmm. just based off the documents from where I was and right. whatnot. Uh, but I don't, I don't really know the exact date, but that's the date that I go with. Uh-huh. So when I woke up, so when I started from that, when I with, came off the withdrawal of that relapse, I went and bought a $20 mic off Amazon and I asked my sponsor if I could record him. Mm-hmm. And I started a recording podcast. I started going with people or that I knew, business owners, whatever. And I'm like, we all go through struggles. It doesn't matter what our background is, but we can overcome them. <laughs> if I can go from 15 years old, paying my parents' bills to sell drugs to people loving and trusting me and accepting me and being and like, I, I didn't say that I had a business, but I used to have a mobile detailing business and that went really well. And because I didn't have a college education, I barely have a high school education, but I can still be resilient and keep fighting forward and overcome whatever comes in my way. Yeah. Because my dad was an alcoholic, because my mom was an alcoholic, my mom has MS. I mean, you know, I'm a white guy from Montana. It does not mean that I have struggles. Yes, there's people in life that has that have way worse struggles than me. But my point is behind my podcast is that we can all overcome them. You know, I hate when people play the victim game. You know, I can't do it. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I'm not strong enough. Well, you know, when I first went into the gym at 19 years old, I could barely lift the bar. And now my deadlift is 315. So if you work hard and put in the work that you can do it. As you say, somebody, when you say about like the, the victim step, the victim card, um, someone said to me just this morning, I have a client where the sessions are kind of poetic in the way she talks. And she said, you know, her, the zipper on her victim suit gets stuck. And so we are untangling that. And, and I love that, but it's one of those things that when people start looking at what role they play in their own muck, you know, a lot of times they find that that's one of those either a trigger point when other people present it to them, or they find that they get stuck in it themselves. And misery loves company. That's right. Yeah. I was going to say, that's why you're able to find, you know, someone to be in a relationship with when you are at your worst, other people are too. And they, you can always, someone, you can always find someone to match where you're at in that moment. And it's a matter of like, what moment do you want to be in when you bring that person into your life, you know, but when we're caught in our mess, we don't think like that. Absolutely. No, yeah. I'm like, the, she's going to fix me. He's going to fix me. Mm-hmm. This Netflix series is going to fix me. And like, when you say the Netflix, because yeah. I do want to talk about how you now, right? Because it's been a couple of years and now it's been just about two years on this time, on this trajectory where you are feeling really good about this and kind of solid in who you are and how you're living. How are you not falling into your own sabotaging tendencies? You know, I, to be honest, like it's like, I think every addict and alcoholic still does it. Like life still happens. Mm-hmm. Like the pandemic happened. Like I literally moved to Missoula for a business opportunity and to start my speaking career and like do more things because like Helena, they have only casinos and retirement homes. (laughs) Missoula, they at least have like live concerts (laughs) and like more like stuff to do for people my age. Right. So I moved here and then like literally I moved here two weeks later, the shutdown happened and we're not having live music. We're not doing anything. Yeah. The business opportunity didn't happen. 
the a friendship ended why i moved over here like and i still like oh i'm not good enough i'm not good enough oh you know what i'm not i don't need to do that because i i do that but when i can look at myself in the mirror and not happy with it or when somebody points it out i get back in the work and when i do the work i feel a lot better mm-hmm. like i and I, like i wouldn't say that i'm depressed like we're just humans yeah everyone right. everyone gets sad you don't need to give it somebody a pill to feel better like it's okay to be sad so am i human yeah i still have ups and downs but i i don't have to use today over it yeah and that's the beauty of it and and i i appreciate that you just said that i mean there are people that definitely have clinical depression and sometimes that can be treated with medication but when you're talking about life happening every we have our ups and we have our downs and it's okay to have those down days, you know, they go on too long. We got to look and say, what do I need to do to pull myself out of this? But it's going to happen and we don't need to shut it down. We don't need to drink it away or give it a pill um, when it's just like that. And I appreciate you saying that because so many people, especially when they've gone through, whether it's an addiction struggle or they just come from like a a dysfunctional kind of family where everybody kind of just self-medicates and whatever thing it is that numbs them, they have a tendency to kind of over-question every mood change that they have. And I have a, a lot of times the people that I'm working with, we're looking at like, well, where did you come up with the idea that you had major depressive disorder or that you had bipolar? Like, where did that come from? If you've been stable for 15 years and there's been no meds and no therapy, like, why do you hold on to this idea about yourself? And even the people I work with in recovery, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I always work with them on like, I get it in the immediate. You always have that, Hey, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. This is what I walk into a room with, but I also want to find out who the rest of you are. Like who's the other parts of you and you know, how are you going to tap into that so that you're also a podcaster? You're also a counselor to some kids. You're also this, you're also a good friend to people, you know, and all these things, who else are you so that you also know how to like connect with people on that level. And I think like a lot of the times it's like women that I'm working with and it's like, or, or, you know, a little bit older, older demographic of men, but like for the women, it's like, well, you're also a mom. You're also, you know, a business owner. You're also this, you're also that. And like, you can find people in those groups it's, it's absolutely it's making absolutely. you more of than just 